Well, hey, if I missed you earlier, my name is David. I'm the teaching pastor here. And uh, we're, the past couple weeks, we've been looking at texts that speak to uh, home and, and what it, how the home that, that God desires to give to us, the, what it, uh, characteristics of the home of our Heavenly Father, and, uh, and what does home do? How does it incorporate in the life and ministry of followers of Jesus? This is part of our, our initiative that we said a couple weeks ago about our Discover Home Capital campaign. You heard Jason reference this earlier, and I wanted to take two seconds just to, to, to come uh, reiterate just why I'm excited for this campaign, why I'm excited for, for this to, uh, to be a part of Grace City, because not only is it a way to directly impact the financial health of the church and position us for future ministry opportunities, th- this is a, a way to, to help us <clears throat> contribute into the work that God is doing in and through this church. You see, it was over seven years ago uh, where uh, God formed this church, and, and this church came into existence. And it's been crazy to see the amount of people that, that God has assembled together, united behind this common mission and vision uh, to declare the hope of the gospel to the city of Jackson. And people have, have fueled into that vision through t- giving of their money, of their resources, but also of their time, also of their talent to where this church has come into existence. Now, I do want to say this specifically about the Discover Home campaign. Over the past seven years with people giving to this work, it enabled us to, uh, giving to the work of Grace City, I should say, it enabled us to get to about six months of cash reserves to be able to, to cover operating expenses, and then also enabled us to accrue a, a sizable building fund. Those two sources of, of cash for us helped us be able to pay for all the renovations out of pocket, out, not all of them, pay for the majority of the renovations out of pocket. And so this campaign is helping us, uh, helping us get back to that strong financial position and, and also positioning, uh, positioning us for future ministry opportunities. Now, I realize that's very vague. That's very intangible. People are still saying, so what are we actually giving to? Um, because it's got us in a situation where um, at the leadership, the leadership team, we're well aware that we are asking for this money or raising this money after we've moved in, right? Um, so like this would kind of be easier to talk about if, not that we had handled it, so handled it this way, but it'd be easier to talk about if I could like have me a thermometer, you know, and we'd be like, we've given this much. And when we get up to the top, like, okay, now we can, you know, paint or now we can buy bricks or something like that. But that's just, that wasn't the way that the timing of this uh, unfolded for us. Uh, we saw the opportunity, felt God leading us to take the opportunity to move and to come here. And, and because of the contributions over the years, we were able to pull the trigger and make it happen, even if it was going to stretch us a little bit financially. And, and so, but I could give you story after story after story, metric after metric after metric about how this was the right decision for us at the right time and how, kind of how God's honored it. But it does have us here. We're asking for, uh, for all of us to come together to, for $182,000 to recover the expense. And I promise the sermon is not on that today. But, but I, it does remind me of a, of a unique window uh, in Grace City. And so this is what excites me about this campaign is that it presents another opportunity for you and for me to view and see Grace City as our church home and take responsibility for the mission and ministry that God has given us in and through this church. While I say it reminds me of a unique window, it really takes me back to the first year of our church's existence. We had been meeting for about six months. We were at our first location at Gulf Guarantee. And uh, for those of you that remember, that remember us being there, there was this massive, like, 18-foot-tall banner that we used to set up on the side of the front of the road, basically on the side of the interstate. It was a great vis- visual. Um, but uh, but it was, it was kind of cumbersome to set up and tear down, and it, it really could, could break very easily. And this one particular morning, I was working with a volunteer who really took his time, disassembled the banner, packed it up perfectly. Everything was stored where it was supposed to be stored. And I said, hey, man, 
man, thank you so much for, for, you know, for being that intentional and taking care of the, of the gear. And he looked at me and said, hey, David, you know, this is my church home. And so this is kind of like my banner. And I'm treating it like it's mine. Like it's, I'm treating it like it's, it's my equipment, like I would something at the house. And that was one moment where God just taught me, reiterated to me that, that Grace City, all right, this thing that we're a part of, this isn't something that like, I preach and you show up and that's church, all right? This isn't a deal where like Rich sings a song and we show up and we listen and we sing along. This isn't something that, that like we on stage create and then y'all come and, and passively watch. No, 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 that's, that's not what this is. God is, is shows and teaches us time and time again that he assembles his people, gathers his people behind a common mission and vision, which for us is declaring the hope of the gospel of the city of, of Jackson, helping all experience the love of Christ and join in his redeeming work, which is for us making sure and helping one another discover life in Christ. So he gives us a common mission and vision and assembles his people, gathers them together, and then calls us to work together with him to declare that hope. And it was just that moment where he was doing that. It was a throwaway comment for him, but it reminded or showed me just how much he viewed Grace City as his home. It wasn't something I created for him. He wasn't like a, a part of the ministry. It was his ministry, and he was stewarding it very, very well. And so this capital campaign to me is just, it gives another opportunity for all of us, you and me, myself, and all of us to, to see this as a, as a ministry that God has given to this church that we can take ownership of, that we can take responsibility for. Because when we give to this, it not only you know, impacts the financial help, it, health, it really does establish for us a firm foundation, uh, to a firm financial foundation and position us for future ministry efforts, whether that's facilities related or missions and, and ministry partnerships down the road. It just takes us uh, to that strong place, helps us own the mission, helps us own the ministry that God has given, and ultimately will help us within the city of Jackson speak to the love that God has shown, I say within, within our, uh, in and through our home in the city of Jackson. You see there's a running theme <laughs> with, with Grace City being here, but what this campaign will do, this will help us uh, ultimately declare the love that Christ has shown, the mercy that we have received in and through our church home. And whether you realize it or not, oftentimes our home is the first place of mission. Our home is the first place where where God has positioned us and called us to do ministry. It's often the first place where we are to uh, not only experience the love of Christ for ourselves, but also join into the redeeming work that he is doing. And we're going to be in a passage of scripture today that really highlights that point. And it's a it's just a weird passage of Scripture. Can I say that? It is a strange passage of Scripture. These 20 verses, there's so much that's happening in it that just, it, it just, there's part of it that I just, I read and I like, I just all sorts of question marks down the sideline, uh, down, down the side of my Bible. Because like for starters, in this passage, there's a man that, that wants to follow Jesus. He says, can I follow you? Like begs to follow Jesus, all right? So you think if Jesus is trying to, you know, spread his message and amass followers that this would be a layup for Jesus. Like, sure, come on, follow along. But no, this man begs to be with Jesus and Jesus says, no, you can't come. You can't follow me. And the reason Jesus says no is because Jesus wants to send him home. His ministry and his mission was, at his, was in and through his home. And this would be quite the, the challenge for this man because everyone, he, he has quite the past and everyone knew his past. That said, he's also going to be the perfect one to speak to the transformative, redeeming work that Christ has done in his life and that Christ perhaps could even do through his life. 
And so I want us to interact with this. Go to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, verse 1 through 20. As you're making your way there, I need to call my shot on the sermon and also set the context. Uh, Let me call my shot on the sermon. Here it is. Um, This sermon is for those of you that have said, hey, I'm a follower of Christ and I know he has given me a ministry. This sermon specifically for you, all right? But that being said, I know as, as I look out that, that many of you perhaps are not there. You're here because you want to know about Jesus. You've heard about his love. You've heard about his grace. And so uh, if that's you, I'm going to ask you, lean in on this text because yes, it is a strange story. But I do believe in this text, you're going to see Christ's power to overcome a past and really redeem and repurpose a past and give a future that perhaps uh, someone might never have imagined. And so I, I think this, this text speaks so much to the transforming redemptive, restorative love and work of Christ. At the same time, some of you might be here and say, you know what, I I believe in who Christ is. I'm in a relationship with him, but I don't know if I've been given a ministry. I don't know if I've been given a mission. I I think this text will will speak to the call that he has given and actually help you see some tangible steps that you can take right where you are at your home, in your work, in your class, in your community. All right, so that's calling my shot context for this. Uh, when I said go to Mark 5, 1 through 20, some of you were like, were we just here? And we were. Last, uh, the last Sunday of February, we were in and around this text. If you were with us throughout the first uh, quarter of 2018, uh, we went through the entire gospel of Mark. But yet we're going back to this story for a few reasons. Um, one, uh, the day we looked at it, it was uh, part of two or three other stories. And so we're going to look and dive into this one specific text. Specifically, we're going to dive in at the very, very end of it to see this, this conclusion. Because I think, again, there's so many principles that, that God is teaching us about home, ministry, mission, in and through the home. We're going to see that in this text. Now, we are dropping in on, again, a strange story. Uh, this is... Uh, day for the disciples and for Jesus. Uh, this is happening early in Christ's earthly ministry. I need to set this up. Sorry, I missed this part. It's happening early in Christ's earthly ministry. The disciples, they're following Jesus, but at this point, they're most likely following him as just a teacher or a rabbi. They don't know the full extent of all that he is. Now, as they cross the Sea of Galilee, there's this huge storm that almost sinks the boat, and Jesus, with just a word, calms the sea, calms the storm. And in that moment, they realize, hey, he's more than just a teacher. He's more than just a prophet. Who is he? They they don't have classification for all that Jesus is in this moment because they're beginning to see more expressions of his power. Uh, Along with this as well, as they're crossing the Sea of Galilee, they're going into a region known as the Decapolis. This is uh, an area of 10 cities that were predominantly Gentile. So they're not Jewish. So that means that they're not looking for the Messiah. They're not looking for the Christ. Uh, there are, are people that are content to worship their pagan gods and goddesses. And so it's, it's just strange that Jesus, the Jewish rabbi, and his disciples are venturing into this area of the Decapolis. But once they, you know, have that horrific experience of the storm almost sinking the boat and then calming the waters, once they get through that kind of scary situation, the disciples think it's all done, but they land into, um, basically they land into a nightmare. Because when they make landfall, they either land either right in a cemetery or right next to one, and this demon-possessed man comes up out of the tombs and calls Jesus by name. And this is the conversation that we come in on. Mark 5, 1 through 9 is what we're going to take. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. 
No one was strong enough to, to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. We'll stop there. I mean, I, I, again, I, I said it that last Sunday in February. This reads basically like something out of a horror movie, right? Because they make landfall in a cemetery, in a tomb. This man comes out covered in blood from cutting himself, screaming at the, now, at the night, you know. They've chained him there. He comes out, he's demon-possessed, and he's scared of Jesus? Like, you know, like, again, what are the disciples might be thinking about? Who are we following? And so we, they, they, there's this strange situation where this demon-possessed man comes up, sees it, has the interaction, but the demons are right because they know that Christ has the ultimate power. And that's what we're seeing in this text. We're seeing the, the power that Jesus has to confront such an extreme example of evil. And it happens in really an, another terrifying way. Because if you keep reading, you see when Jesus cast these demons out, the legion of demons out of this man, the demons actually asked to go into some nearby pigs. There's a herd of like 2,000 pigs, and the demons say, we want to go there when you cast us out. And, G- and Jesus gives in. And so the, the demons uh, leave the man, go into the pigs. The pigs are all nice and calm, then they lose their minds. And they run down the bank and drown themselves in the Sea of Galilee. And so uh, they kill themselves in, in front of all of them. And, and again, just how terrifying, right? Nice pigs, dead pigs. And, and just what, what just happened, you know, what, what took place. And so we talked about it three weeks ago, how terrifying that would be, but also how revealing, how revealing in that moment. I know that's a weird word, but just, just think about it, right? If you're this demon-possessed man, and now these demons have been taken from you and given to the pigs, and you see this entire 2,000 herd of pigs run down the bank and drown themselves, how revealing in a sense of, that's what afflicted me. Like he would see such a visual impression or visual uh, uh, just sign of what's afflicted him. He would be able to see just how much he was afflicted, see the amount of evilness that tormented his body and soul and how he's been delivered from it. You know, if they were just cast out, he might wonder, are they going to come back? But he would see that they're taken from him into the pigs, drowned in a lake. I mean, literally, his afflictions taken from him, tossed in a lake. He's healed. It's done with. It is in his past. And so I I think in this moment how revealing it must have been for this man who's been afflicted for so long to see the amount of evil and now to see it taken from him. So I think how revealing. But yes, how terrifying. Because there's a group watching. The farmers that were tending to the pigs are like, what just happened? And so they, they, they are scared. And so they run into the town to tell them about what's happened to this demon possessed man and to tell them what's happened to the herd of pigs. And then the town comes out And they come out to Jesus, and they plead with Jesus to leave. They don't bring their sick. They don't bring their hurting. They don't bring their wounded. They they don't bring someone that perhaps could need that miracle. They hear about Christ's work and, and with the pigs, and they come out, and they are begging Jesus to leave. They don't connect the dots and think, okay, if he did this for that demon-possessed man, what, what could he do for, for my loved ones? What could he do for, for those that I know that are hurting, that are wounded? They don't connect the dots and think, what could Jesus do for my home and my hometown and the people in it? They come out, they're afraid of Jesus. Remember, they're Gentiles. They're most likely believing he's some sort of magician or a sorcerer. They're afraid of his power, 
and they beg him to leave. And Jesus says, okay, I'll leave. I'll leave. And this is where we come into the text, verse 18. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you beg to go with Jesus for this? Like, strange thing for a preacher to say, but just for a moment, leave Jesus out of it. <laughs> like, leave Jesus out of this. But if, if this was you and this was your experience, wouldn't you want to go with Jesus? Because this man's, for the, the majority of his adult life, he's no, been known as the crazy guy chained up in the cemetery, right? Like, that's him. That's his reputation. That's what he's known for. Man, so talk about wanting to move and have a fresh start. Because sometimes you want to go where nobody knows your name. And this is the first boat out of town, and this guy is wanting to get on it. Now, but Jesus is here, right? We don't need to leave Jesus out of it. Jesus is here, and he wants to go and be with Jesus. The original language lets us know he's not wanting to just be a tag-along. He's not wanting to just go along for the ride. No, he's wanting to go to be a disciple, to learn from Christ, to follow him, to, to co-labor with him. He wants to be with Jesus. He's committed on the spot. He's experienced the, the power of Christ, the mercy of Christ. When everyone else cast him aside, Jesus comes to him. I mean, Mark even uh, gives us th- this impression of just how much intentionality is behind this. And of, of Jesus coming and having this interaction with this uh, demon-possessed man, he experiences the love and the grace and the restoration of Christ, and he is committed on the spot, I want to go with you. And that question, though, is also, can I go, and, and can I go with you? It's also, can I leave this place? Wanting to, to leave his hometown, to leave these people behind. And look at Jesus' answer. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people And tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. He gets a no. He is told no. This was his response. It was a no. No, you cannot come with us. It's a no that he most likely did not want to get. But it is a no that comes with a purpose. He gets a no, but he also gets a mission. He gets a no, but he also gets a ministry. Jesus says, go home. Go home. Go home and tell the people, tell your own people what the Lord has done on your behalf and how much mercy you have been given. And so, he, you know, he's, he's wanting to go with Jesus and, and travel with Jesus to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, where all where Christ goes. But Jesus says, no, you're not going to go with me. You're not going to go into all these lands. You're going to go home and you're going to tell the people there what I've done for you and the mercy that you've received. What a challenge he is entrusted with. What a challenge that he's entrusted with. And I use the word entrust intentionally because, again, they're in the Decapolis. This is not the center of Christ's earthly ministry. It's a region predominantly of Gentiles. Jesus will go into into the Decapolis on a few occasions, but for the most part, he's not going into that region. But yet Jesus leaves this man to be a missionary leaves this man to be the one to begin to speak the news, the good news about Christ in this entire region. And again, Mark kind of structures his gospel to show us the intentionality of it because, I mean, Jesus is, he crosses the Sea of Galilee, there's a miracle, they land, heals one person, back in the boat, back to the other side. But this one person, Jesus says, you're gonna be the one. You're gonna be the one to tell them all of what the Lord has done. And yes, the one that he entrusts this ministry to is the former demon-possessed guy that's been chained up in the tombs. That's where I think the challenge is. I mean, it would be a challenge enough if he didn't have that past, but he has that past. So that means 
every conversation is probably going to begin with, hey, aren't you the one that was chained up in the tombs? Like, you know, every time he goes and has a conversation with someone, it's, it's, hey, aren't you the guy that used to cut himself with stones? The other gospel accounts, we know that he was known for, you know, getting naked and cutting himself with stones. So it's, hey, aren't you the guy that used to do this and go into the tombs? Aren't you the guy that used to howl at the night? Aren't you the guy that used to terrorize everybody and we put you in the tombs? And so every conversation will be a reminder of the brokenness of his past that he desperately wants to escape. But with this mission, Jesus is showing him, not only does he redeem a past, but he also repurposes it. Every conversation is now a chance to tell how much the Lord has done and the mercy that has been shown. It's a chance to witness to the hope and the grace of Jesus. And it's going to happen in and through his home and his people who live there, in and among the people that knew him best, including those parts of his life that he wished everyone would forget. But yet he's positioned to be the one to witness to the transformative power of Christ. And I love the man's response. Look at verse 20. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. So he realizes it's a no from Jesus, but I'm going to follow Jesus' instructions. I'm going to follow his commands. And he, he leaves that place, and he goes back into the Decapolis, back into his hometown, and he begins to spread the word. And it says all the people were amazed, and understandably so. Hey, aren't you the one that used to cut himself? Hey, aren't you the one in the tombs? What happened? What, what's come over you? What happened to you to be healed? No, 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 not a what, it's a who. Jesus, Jesus happened to me. And they begin to hear about the power and hope and the mercy found in Christ. Interestingly enough, the next time Jesus comes back into this region, he, he heals a, a few other individuals. There's a blind man, a deaf man that get healed, and they, and they go and they begin to speak uh, about Jesus. So they spread the word too. But when Jesus comes back into this region, over 4,000 people turn out to want to hear from Christ, to, to want to learn from him. And so 4,000 people don't come up and beg him to leave. 4,000 people don't show up afraid of his power. 4,000 people show up curious about his power and his hope and his redemption. Many biblical scholars trace it back to the efforts of this man who responded to the call of God in his life to go home and tell the people what the Lord had done for him and the mercy that he received. He got it. He got it. He understood, and he went to work in his own backyard among the people that knew his past, perhaps who were confused by his present, and that made them uh, cause to wonder about their own future and what Jesus might do for them. So it is with us. So it is with us. Again, if you're here and you're a follower of Christ, there's a consistent call throughout all of Scripture for all of us to go and tell what the Lord has done on our behalf and the mercy that we have received. We're to go and we're to speak of Christ's sacrificial work on the cross and there where he takes our sinfulness on himself and grants us his righteousness in return. We talk about the forgiveness that he desires to give, the grace that he gives that has nothing to do with our own merit but everything to do with his kindness and his, and his love and his patience. We're to go and we're to speak of how Christ has made a way for us to be adopted into the family of God, right? Right? That's, that's our good news. That's our story. That's the message that we, get to, that we get to teach and demonstrate and preach. And yes, we do that across the globe. We do it to the ends of the earth, but we are also to do it across the street. We cannot neglect our home because we are called to do this there as well, which means we are going to be telling about what the Lord has done on our behalf and the mercy that we've received to those that know our past, that know the parts of our life that we wish we could forget, 
We're going to be telling it to those that perhaps are even confused by our presence. You know, when I, when I come across guys from high school and, and they're like, you know, what are you doing now? I'm like, I'm a pastor. Uh, there's, there's part of me that, like, I'm just imagining kind of the, the, the like, I don't say it out loud, but I, I almost imagine the questions that they might ask in return. Like, man, weren't you the one that was so judgmental? And how are you going to talk about grace? Man, weren't, weren't you the one that was so condescending? Weren't you the one that was so self-righteous? And, and so, like, I, they saw me at my worst, right? And, and, and they, they, they saw so many of, them, of those mistakes. And so, like, I, I can just kind of put the, project those questions onto them. And I think that's where the fear comes in, in sharing our faith. So many times it, can, it might be easier to, to do this amongst people that don't know us. But, man, when we start telling this story among people that know our failures, that know our faults, it gets hard. Because you have the question that you think the other person's asking. You have the question that you think the other person is imagining. Like, hey, aren't, aren't, aren't you the one that was so bitter? Aren't, aren't you the one that was always the bully? Aren't you the one who was, was always playing the victim? It was everybody else's fault but your own. Aren't you the one who was always silent when, when we needed you to speak up? Aren't you the one that, that let his lust and ego and, and power just go completely unchecked? Aren't you the one who, what happened? What came over you? What changes, they remember a past and now maybe they're confused by the present and it's there we can begin to tell the story and you can say it in your own ways, you can say it in your own words, but it's there we can say God's kindness led to repentance. God's mercy redeemed. I was lost and then found and it is the hope of Jesus. And, it, and it's, it's a time for honesty because it's, hey, look, I can still be some of those things, man. I can still be some of those things because I am broken and I am jacked up and I'm not perfect by any stretch, but I'm telling you, the love of Christ continues to show me my sin. The love of Christ continues to show me the afflictions of my soul and he leads me to, to confess them and Christ takes them from me. He pulls them away from me and helps me grow in his righteousness, grow in his hope, grow in his redemption. That is a hope that I have because of him and I'm telling you, it can happen for you as well. Like, that's the story we get to tell. That's the message that we get to preach. That's the hope that we get to spread. And we're to do it across the globe, but yes, we're to do it among our own people. And where it gets really scary is maybe you have to do this in the context of your own family. Maybe to a spouse. Maybe to parents. Maybe to siblings. Maybe to kids. And it's there where it's like, David, they have seen me at my absolute worst they'll be able to smell the hypocrisy from a mile away. And, it, and, it, and it's in those moments where I would say to you, yes, and that's the point if you're honest about it. And what I mean by being honest about it is, like, I think there's a dishonest hypocrisy that's like, hey, I'm going to do this way, and there's no intention of doing it, just completely running the opposite way. I, I, I think there's a Honest hypocrisy, that's a phrase I just came up with. <laughs> that's, that's, like, that's, that's like, hey, this is what I'm trying to be, and I'm a failure, and I'm a screw-up, and I'm going to fall short nine times out of ten. But I believe that God's love has redeemed me. I believe God's love will meet me in every single one of those failures, will show me, and will still be for, there for me to be able to confess, to be able to stand up and try to go again. And, and so you, as my parent, as my spouse, as my kid, as my brother, you are going to have a front row seat to see this progressive work that Christ is doing in my life. And I'm telling you, it's happening in my life. It might be slow work, it might be slow work. You're going to have a front row seat to see probably more failures than I want you to see. But I'm telling you, it's still a hope that can happen in your life. And I'm praying that you would at least consider to learn, come and learn and discover who Christ is. And, and so like that's, 
Like, that's the story we get to teach. That's the story we get to explain. That's the story that we get to walk and live through. And that's the message that we speak among our neighbors, our classmates, our coworkers, the parents on your kids' sports teams. Because all of those, like, that's stories of redemption, right? That's stories of life change, whether it's big or small. That's stories of life change, whether it's big or small. And again, when I say whether it's big or small, like, you know, I thought I was a patient person, and then I had kids, and, and God's like, you are not patient, and you're going to learn patience through, through your children, and, and I love them. They teach me uh, about patience, but they also teach me about the patience that God the Father has shown to me, and so it teaches me how much the Lord has done on my behalf and the mercy that I have received, and so when I have conversations with other parents, I can speak to that small example of life change, but it's a way that we speak in our home of what the Lord has done and the mercy that we have received. There's so many ways that it can happen. I was talking with one of you. One of you just invested in a basketball goal and put it in the front of their yard, and the kids showed up from the street, and it was an opportunity to just begin to build relationships and love, and that is a way where people go home and speak about what the Lord has done and the mercy they have received. And it has, has a ministry. It's, it's ways, stories of redemption. It helps people see and know the hope of Christ can redeem a past and perhaps change a future. Last week, uh, we saw, uh, we saw um, home as a place of redemption and mercy, and that uh, through the prodigal son, we saw that the home is a place of kindness and protection and a place of celebration and joy. And today, we're seeing home as a mission field. We're seeing home as a, as a place of ministry that can yield an abundant harvest for Christ. This man went into the capitalist, and, he, and he, he told what Christ had done, and thousands began wanting to know more about Jesus. And so I'm praying the same is true for you and the ministry God has given to you. Do you believe that can happen in and through when we're obedient to Christ? I'm praying that that's the type of harvest and, and yield and results that happens in and through the ministry that Christ has given you as an individual. And I'm praying that for our ministry as a church. I'm praying that for our church, that as we continue to... Um, uh, cultivate this place as a church home that mirrors and reflects the, the characteristics and the attributes of the home of our Heavenly Father, that this would be a place of kindness and protection and joy, that this would be a, cl- a place where routinely, week after week, we are speaking about what the Lord has done and the mercy that he has given on our behalf. Because that's the type of home that when people encounter it, I, I think it can lead both a person and a community to see that their past can be redeemed and their future can be changed because of the hope and the restorative power of Christ. And so church, and when the service ends, let's wait till the service ends, but when the service ends, let's go home and speak of what the Lord has done on our behalf and the mercy he has given.